What would you do with your life if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed, what would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of global Swedish design and inspiration brand Dream Life and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people like you to chase your own dream life, whatever that means for you. Many years ago, I wrote down a dream on paper that would one day bring Swedish design to the world and create beautiful, inspiring and meaningful products that would bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to leverage everything I've learned to help you dream big and to create a global movement to inspire 101 million people to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode will dive deep into the power of dreaming and share real insights and practical ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode. Today's guests are not just one guest. I've got two amazing guests and the most inspiring episode about wellness. Last year, there was a new book out called How to Be Well by Dr. Karen Coates and Sharon Kopka, and I just loved it. So I have invited them to come on the podcast And I know that you would just love it. And if you feel like this is just not enough, make sure you grab a copy of the book. But also, if you want to read it with someone, we are going to read this book in my book group called Grow, where we're going to read the book over a month. And uh, if you want to join us and discuss it and implement it, just go to yourdreamlifestartshere.com to sign up. This is some facts about the amazing guests today. We'll start with Dr. Karen Coates. As a medical advisor to some of Australia's highest profile celebrities and elite athletes, Dr. Karen draws on her extensive experience as an integrative medicine doctor and qualifications in surgery, obstetrics, nutritional and environmental medicine. Over her 30-year career, she has cared for women of all ages who have come to her with diverse medical challenges. A keen researcher who keeps her finger on the pulse of cutting-edge medicine, Dr. Karen is respected for her holistic approach to healthcare, which extends beyond the traditional medical model while remaining evidence-based. And Dr. Sharon Kolka. Inspiring men and women around Australia to take control of their health and wellness for over 40 years, Sharon Kolka is one of Australia's leading wellness advisors. Her innovative approach of well-being shaped the highly successful and transformative programs at Wingana Lifestyle Retreat, where she previously held a position of general manager and wellness director for 16 years. A trailblazer in her field of wellness and stress resilience, Sharon has helped to change and transform the lives of tens of thousands of people. This episode is just so good, so let's get straight into it. Hello, 
Welcome. I am so excited to have you, Dr. Karen and Sharon. It's like a dream coming true to have both of you. So thank you so much. Well, Christina, thank you for having us. We're really excited to spend some time with you this morning. Before we get started, I have a question that I ask all my guests, and I'd like to ask both of you. Did you have a dream as a child? So something you wanted to do or become or perhaps achieve? It's interesting. I can always remember from the time when I have childhood memories, all I wanted to do was to go to school. And I used to stand out on the road with my little play suitcase, waiting for a school bus that never came. So I suppose perhaps from that time, it was learning. I just devour knowledge and devour research, which has been a really good advantage when we were constructing this book, which is evidence-based. I bet, I bet. It's so full of knowledge in that book. So what a beautiful dream. How about you, Sharon? My dream was always to be in nature and to be around horses and to be with people. And it's interesting how those little wanderings and little fantasies as a young child when you're sitting there watching the butterflies and, you know, looking at the clouds and really fascinated with the natural world, how that kind of unfolds. And it's still very much a part of my life today and, of course, has been in my 30 years working in health retreats where... It's always been about being in nature and bringing people into the healing aspects of nature. So I think as an adult, I became more interested in research, but as a child, it was definitely all about the natural world. You have everything combined together, which is so brilliant because your book um, combined is just so amazing. And I can't tell you how excited I was when I saw your book. First, I love yellow. So that was a beautiful, and love the design in not just the cover, but the whole book. I just love it. And also, I've been giving it as a gift to so many of my friends and will continue to do that because I feel like so many are struggling, obviously, with their well-being, but also not everyone can go to a retreat, which is, I guess, the whole idea for writing a book. So I'm curious for all our listeners who obviously we will be linking and recommending this book to everyone who's listening. And we have listeners from all over the world, I think 180 countries, which always blows my mind. <laughs> but I would love to, perhaps we can start with you, Sharon, because you run uh, Guingana for a long time, uh, which was a health retreat that I absolutely loved. And I have been to many retreats around the world. And I think when we're privileged to go to a retreat is just amazing and you always come back feeling so amazing. But the hardest thing, I think, is for anyone who can go to a retreat, it's amazing. But where do we actually start? Because sometimes when we're not feeling great, it's really overwhelming and knowing where to start. You're right. The easiest thing to do is to sort of give yourself a, a wellness holiday and really focus on, you know, the intentions of working on your I suppose working on your healthiest habits and, and really finding out where is the best lifestyle for you. Karen and I have always talked through when we've been writing the book that wellness isn't what it looks like, it's actually what it feels like. So I think that's where you start, where you start noticing that actually I just don't feel myself or I feel like something's not 100% but I can't put my finger on it. Or alternatively, it's like I'm really feeling completely and utterly unwell. And that might be mentally, it could be emotionally, it could be physically. 
all of those parameters contribute to your feeling of your well-being. I guess from my perspective, it's always about noticing for yourself and becoming aware of what's happening. And I guess that's the tricky bit because sometimes, particularly women, will push that to the side and keep going with all the tasks they've got to get done and keep going with all the balls in the air until they get to a point where they just collapse and, you know, there is something that they just can't keep doing anymore. So in the book, we talk about being depleted, being in a surviving state or being in a thriving state. And you can be any one of those three states at any time in your life. Just because you're in a thriving state doesn't necessarily mean to say that you stay there, something might happen to you and you've you know, the wheels start to fall off and you find yourself all of a sudden depleted. So it's knowing where you're at and knowing that where you move forward is different depending on whether you're really depleted or whether you're just sort of like, I'm doing too much and I need to kind of slow myself down. If you're really depleted, the steps forward need a lot more care for self. So prioritizing yourself and understanding where you're at, I believe that's where we start. Mm, I love that. Dr. Karen, one thing that I find really difficult if you're not in a beautiful retreat is to find a functional medicine doctor. Because I often ask my friends who they go to and they say they just go to a, if I can say normal GP, I'm not sure if that's the right way of saying it, or a conventional practitioner. But I always feel like you want to have that, but you also want someone who is holistic and thinking more than just about the physical. So so how do we find someone like you? I've noticed that on the Gold Coast where I, I was working and um, and living for the last 25 years is that we've lost about three or four of our integrative doctors over the time when COVID um, came into being. So it's more and more difficult to actually find that integrative GP. Same goes for Sydney, same goes for Melbourne. And I've been pondering that exact same question, Christina, and I think the answer lies in knowing what to expect from your conventional GP and knowing when they're the right person to, to phone for an appointment and to link yourself in with an experienced naturopath to basically fill in that integrative side of what uh, you need to be well. And expecting a conventional GP to give you information on preventive health when they're working in that acute medical model and they've got those time pressures of very sick people sitting in the waiting room competing for their time with you, it's really a matter of asking the right question of the right practitioner. So I think the solution is find a naturopathic physician who you really gel with and sometimes that's trying a few before you actually know that this is the right person for you and to be aware that there are naturopaths who subspecialize in various areas. So if it's hormonal health that you want mostly, find a practitioner who's really got a special interest in that area of expertise and I think just use your, your acute medical doctor when you've got those acute, very mainstream medical issues that you know herbs and natural therapies are not going to, uh, do, to do the job. I would probably add, if you don't mind, that in Australia anyway, many of doctors like Karen, for example, who are very integrative, will be prescribing often bioidentical hormones and they can only be, I suppose, prescribed through the compounding chemists, those chemists that actually make those hormones. 
And often, sometimes you've got to work backwards. So if you go to a compounding chemist and you ask the compounding chemist which doctors in the area are requesting or prescribing bioidentical hormones, you can probably trace it back to those doctors that are thinking more along the lines of, you know, being more integrative rather than just using the straight up medical model. So that might be a way that you can kind of um, hack your way into finding someone through the compounding chemists. Great. Thank you. Some great advice there. I've been on a bit of a journey to find different ones and I've actually really enjoyed just trying different, uh, even like, you know, acupuncturists and lots of different practitioners. And I've just been so inspired by just getting a little bit of knowledge and inspiration from each of them. And then it's been kind of a fun well-being journey to be on and something that I'm hoping to continue for a long time. And I think also reaching out and finding, particularly in Australia, we're talking about here, the Integrative Medical Association and also ACNEM, which is the Australian Australasian College uh, of Complementary and Environmental Medicine. Dot org. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. They list um, a lot of the doctors in their area who are interested in post-graduation studies in the area of complementary health. So it's acnem.org. Wonderful. Thank you for that. So let's talk about the three say, states of being. And um, so I read your book a couple of times and I also have it on audio because last week I went to a little day retreat just for myself and I was listening all the way down and all the way up. And every single time I listen to it, I get something different out of it. So I really loved the, what, the three ways you're talking about are thriving, surviving, and depleted. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think if I look back in my clinical practice to the types of women who presented and the problems that came across my doorstep, 80% of the time it was not a medical diagnosis that was eventually put on their heads. It was something that was very much more in tune with lifestyle solutions and lifestyle causes. And I saw many hundreds and thousands of depleted women during the course of my clinical work when I was doing face-to-face consulting. And I think that when they come to me as a mainstream medical doctor, they're expecting a quick fix solution to their symptoms. And the first step is educating women that are in that depleted state of being is that there's no pharmaceutical drug that's going to fix it. And that there's no quick fix. You've basically got to look back at self-responsibility, lifestyle choices, and getting those pillars of wellness really well in balance. So I, I think that that was certainly my experience even before I met Sharon. And then after we collaborated and I started to do some uh, women's wellness retreat, even before Gwingana at a, another health retreat, I did a questionnaire for these women and I said, right, what would you like us to concentrate on in the time, those few days that we had together? And 95% of the, the time they ticked, among other things, but a common thread was stress, anxiety and depression. And over the, the time that I've been more into that integrative medical model and started to research, I understand that the impact of stress on women is so much greater, the price we pay is so much greater, and the fast track to depletion will happen much, much quicker for women if they're under enormous stress. So it then became a matter of 
teaching these women good stress management skills and trying to coach them into making those really tough lifestyle changes in a world that is always fast-paced. You know, we've, we've got those emails that we've got to reply to. We've got things that way back when I was was a young woman, we would have taken weeks to write a letter, have that letter sent by snail mail, get a result, to a, a reply, and then act on it. And now it's almost, I want it, I want it now. And that fast pace not only messes with our stress hormones, but it messes with our brains as well. We're not meant for our brains to be switched on every single waking moment of our waking day. So I, I think it's lifestyle that we've got to focus on there because there's never going to be a pharmaceutical drug that's going to get a depleted woman into a thriving state of being. So if I can probably add here, uh, what I was seeing in the world of health retreats was, you know, where people were, just women were coming in and just saying, I couldn't possibly even go and do, you know, like even a yoga class is like, I'm just so depleted. So I think in the world of naturopathy, they would start to use words like, adrenally fatigued or adrenally exhausted and there is a medical word for that which Karen will share. Yeah, adrenal insufficiency it sort of crept into our our medical software about five or six years ago as a diagnosis that I could click in my very mainstream medical uh, software practice as a diagnostic um, indicator for, for women who I was seeing. It was the first time I thought that perhaps mainstream medicine was starting to appreciate condition existed but because it's not a medical disease medical doctors can't get their heads around it unless they've actually experienced it themselves and then the surviving state is those women that have all the balls in the air and they're managing to tick all their boxes and get it all done but if you kind of throw another ball to them they're just like it's just i i just i just can't take it they're okay they're they're all right but they're not thriving and if they keep going at that level and something comes and really pushes them, they're, you know, three steps away from that depleted state because their adrenals are completely under the pump. And mentally and emotionally, they're just frazzled. They're sort of like meerkats, you know, they're just getting everything done, but, you know, you ask them to relax and they just can't relax because I've just got too much to do. And then the ideal sort of like thriving state is where you've just got energy and you're able to tick all your boxes and get everything done but there's some resilience to what you're doing. You might get a little bit stressed, but you're giving back to yourself. So therefore, you're managing to keep things going without breaking, without sort of frazzling yourself. And you can be thriving and, you know, and something can happen to you. Last year, I broke my leg and I was thriving. And just breaking my leg and having, you know, in three places and having three surgeries and not able to put my foot on the ground for three months threw me into a depleted state because the fallout of that was I wasn't able to move my muscles. I went from 15,000 to 20,000 steps a day to, you know, 50. So then the fallout of that is you lose muscle mass, you gain body fat. You know, there's a whole emotional thing that goes with that. So I think what we really wanted to make known is this, when we think about wellness, we think that we're going to be well all the time and we want to be. But really the book is a way that to understand that sometimes you fall off the wagon for whatever reason and often it's no fault of your own. But it's how do you pick yourself back up again and put yourself back up? And, you know, it is really self-care. So we want to move from as much as possible from healthcare to self-care. Healthcare is there when we need it in crisis, but if we've got more self-care, we need less healthcare. 
I think also when we're looking at the strategies to either pull yourself back from a depleted state when you've been thriving is that you need to almost have a, a playbook of what you need to do if this happened. And I can remember asking a woman who was terribly depleted and she had five kids and I, silly me, I asked her whether she actually had time to meditate and she snapped back at me and she said, of course I meditate. I meditate while I'm driving the kids to school every morning. I just let her sit with that response and I gave her 30 to 40 seconds of silence and then she sat down she said, that didn't really sound right, did it? And I said, no, but I think that's where we need to start with you, you know, giving a little bit more time to yourself to actually do these self-care things that you know are important, but you just haven't scheduled them into your exceptionally busy day. And I think that's the point. Women give so much and they put everything on the front burner for everybody else and they put themselves on the back burner. And if you break, you know, we say it in the book, if you break, everything breaks around you. So there's almost this, I need to give myself permission to actually look at self-preservation here because the best I can be for everyone, for my work, for my business, for my family, for my, you know, for myself is actually to be working on myself so I can actually manage and deal with everything. So that, that prioritizing self-care is often hard because there's so much going on, but yet if you don't, it leads you down a pathway where there's going to be more going on and you're going to have less energy and be more depleted to even deal with it. So it's the old sort of adage of being on the plane and they say, you know, if there's a an, you know, highly unlikely event, put your mask on yourself before you put it on anybody else. It's that sort of thinking. I think one of the things, the gifts of, of COVID, if we look at sort of glass half full stuff, has been the destruction of that horrible philosophy of soldier on and you know there were ads saying you know soldier on through the colds and flus take all of these pharmaceutical drugs and you will not miss work and even back then I was thinking that's such a bad message to be putting out to the population and we've actually gratis of COVID turned that 180 degrees on the head don't go to work if you're sick stay home self-care and wait till you're well before you move back into the workplace so that you don't infect everybody else there. And I think that's been a really thing for our, our society to actually get uh, the message about. Mm. There's been a lot of challenges, of course, and a lot of pain and suffering through the COVID for many people around the planet. Um, however, just looking at those small, you know, what did, what, where's the good in it? I think is a, is a good exercise to kind of remind ourselves that. Yeah, there's, the, we never want to go through it again. And there was some hor hor horrific things that happened. But today, you know, what are we doing to help ourselves move forward with that? Yeah, absolutely. So there were so many silver linings. So let's talk about the five pillars of wellness that you are talking about in the book. We talk about, of course, exercise. However, we talk about exercise in terms of movement. Too much exercise is definitely not good for the body. On many levels, from a mental perspective, it can also be, you know, I must, I must, I must, I must, I must, and if I don't, then I feel like I'm guilty for something. On an emotional level, you know, just trying to fit it in. But also physically, it can be, if you've got a lot going on and you're, you're you know, running for much of the day, like, you, you know, you're doing a solid hour of too much exercise every day, it can be detrimental to our heart and to our circulatory system. 
However, the flip side, if, if you don't do enough, then it is a problem as well and it's not good for us. Here's the thing, finding the balance, there isn't one size fits all. Depends whether you're depleted, depends whether you're surviving, or depends whether you're thriving as to what's the right balance for you. So we kind of discuss that in the book. The next one is nourishment. And nourishment is based on not just how you, what you eat, but how your body absorbs the food, digestion. It also looks at our gut health, those sorts of things, you know, the gut microbiome. And the, again, not one size fits all because nourishment, of course, is right for different people. Different people have different dietary requirements. Different people want to make decisions based on you know, they, they want to be vegan, for example, and that's okay. So we, we open the book on that and just, you know, just eat real food and find your balance. The next one is stress management. And we kind of slip that into three categories and it comes into like emotional well-being because emotional well-being is your foundation for how well you manage stress. And then we've got what is stress? How do we define it? It's the survival state of the human species. The body's hardwired, you know, to, to actually survive. So how do we manage that? And then we've got stress resilience strategies as to how you can actually find your way through still getting everything done, but being resilient through it. Then we move into sleep. When we actually categorize the pillars of wellness, it was obvious that nourishment did have to come first because that's sort of the thing that you need to do in order to be well every day of your life. But we started to research the importance of sleep and it certainly became obvious that particularly for women, sleep was a, a non-negotiable if you want to be well. And I hope that we actually made that point in the book. It's interesting that since we, we wrote the book, I've read research about how much more important sleep is for women than for men. And it's because during our sleep, we make these beautiful adrenal hormones that then become our fertility hormones, our estrogen and our progesterone building blocks. And also our energy drive libido hormone, which is testosterone. We actually have to manufacture it via some interesting biochemical pathways that go through the adrenals. And that can only happen, the start of that process can only happen when we're sleeping. For men, they have the ability to produce their testosterone from their testicles. So sleep doesn't impact or sleep deprivation doesn't impact on men uh, in the same way as it impacts on women. We pay a much higher price to sleep deprivation and we pay a much higher price for stress as well. The next one that we cover is is looking at how to thrive in what is essentially a toxic world. We're exposed to these chemicals since the 1940s that human beings have never actually encountered in their evolutionary history of 60,000 plus years. And it's a matter of looking at how we can minimize the effects of it, minimize our exposure to it, and to basically acknowledge that a lot of these chemicals that we come in contact with every single day of our, our life mess with our hormones. They either act like estrogen and start to really play with the balance between our fertility hormones, or they interfere with our ability to get those hormones recycled and out of our system in order to get balance. So women, women have a much higher price to pay for living in a toxic world. So we've certainly gone through strategies that you can use within your home 
that you have total control over to minimise the the toxic uh, effects of chemicals and to also find hormonal balance. And, and sort of I, I weave in and out of those those chapters with chemical minimisation is important for hormonal harmony, but then we sort of move into, okay, let's get that hormonal balance in your life regardless of what uh, stage of life you're at. The hormonal imbalance of puberty is very different from the hormonal imbalance of your 40s to 50s and certainly postmenopausally. So it's just looking at those various stages in a woman's evolutionary biological lifetime that uh, give them challenges with regard to how their hormones are either supporting them or basically causing hormonal havoc for them. The other thing that I thought was important to add in is, uh, and I suppose an introduction to the idea of how our genes play a part in all of this wellness stuff and how particularly the research tells us that our genes talk directly to the food that we eat. It's an, an interesting interplay that works not only just on a, a biochemical level, but on a genetic level. You know, the food that you choose to put in your mouth and then into your body will either impact your ability to be optimally well or really sabotage it. And this is where companies that are the fast food industry of the day are going to, I suppose, look back in history and really have to pay quite a high price for the role they played in unwellness in our society. I couldn't agree more. When I read this for the first time, I was reflecting that after having two kids and working a lot, one thing that I focused on was sleep. And uh, I felt like the sleep, when I got my sleep back on track after, you know, being awake in the middle of the night with kids, et cetera, and also working a lot and traveled on top of that, when I focused on sleep, all those five pillars kind of it had a ripple effect. So when I got good sleep, I was able to get up earlier and focus on me, which you guys had just talked about that we need some self-care. And then because of that, I exercised. And because I exercised, I then felt so much better. And because of that, I ate much better. And then, of course, um, slept much better again. So it was just that ripple effect. So I would love to talk about food because I think it's so confusing out there. And uh, I loved the five eat for life principles. So I'd love for you to share those with our listeners. Sure. So I think the very first thing was the guidelines. The guideline is eat foods that are still in their natural state as mother nature intended it. So wherever possible, you know, we think about things as, okay, you're eating something that has grown, whether it's grown out of the ground or it's come off a tree or a bush, and it's in its in its as most natural state as it possibly can be. So if you pick an orange off a tree, then you, you know, it comes in perfect packaging that Mother Nature has provided. And when you open that orange and you eat that orange whole, you're actually going to get all the pith. Um, which has the bioflavonoids, you're going to get the fiber in there as well as the vitamin C from the juice. However, if you just juice it, you just get the sugar and the vitamin C. You don't get the regulation of the body's capacity to actually regulate that and balance that blood sugar level. So if you take that across everything, yes, you can take a potato out of the ground and yes, you can, you know, you can certainly cook it and you can mash it or you can 
bake it whole or you can air fry it maybe, but it, it's still a whole potato that's been cooked. I guess it's avoiding the processed foods as much as possible. Things that come out of packets, it's always better to try to eat the food whole. So there's the vegetables and the fruits um, that has all of our vitamins and our minerals and as well as the carbohydrates, which are really important. And then when you sort of look at the fats, the the really healthy fats, the not the denatured fats, so nuts and seeds and avocado and egg yolk and things that Mother Nature has provided for us that are whole fats. We talk about them as being whole fats rather than something that's been deep fried. So we're getting fat from that and that includes potato chips. And look, you know, it's what you do most of the time that's important um, rather than what you do some of the time. Uh, so basically, it's just taking those beautiful whole fats because our body needs them. And then in terms of protein, it can be a nut, a grain and a seed if you're a vegetarian or if you're a vegan. But if you're choosing to eat meat, we think about it as something that's raw or something that's swum or something that's flown. So we want to try to eat food as Mother Nature intended it. We also sort of want people to start thinking about kind of eating consistently as much as possible every day. So including those five cups of vegetables into your diet on a regular basis. And you're, you know, you're eating sort of semi-regularly. You know, breakfast is break fast. So for some people, they don't need to eat until 11 o'clock in the morning because maybe their body actually does better at that. So they're kind of fasting from dinner at night to the next day. But other people who are diabetic or maybe they've got a very fast metabolism or they've got a very busy work schedule, they're very physically active, they might need to break their fast at 8 o'clock in the morning. But whatever you're doing, sort of thinking about it as basically having those guidelines. Also thinking about including protein, fats and carbohydrates because there's a big push that you know we want to make an enemy of carbohydrates, for example. But we need carbohydrates. That's how our body actually, you know, feeds our brain. We need glucose. But having the right amount of carbohydrate and making sure that it fits well with our ability to manage our body fat levels. Some people can have more. Some people have less. So eating that protein, fats, and carbohydrate at each meal is a really healthy thing to do. Eat slowly and not too much at each meal to support digestion. Um, so we talk about chewing your food and chewing until there's no lumps. So you shouldn't be swallowing any lumps because what we tend to do in a fast-paced, busy world is we kind of go choo-choo and then we swallow and then we take a sip of water to actually help that lump go down. But if we actually move water away from our meals, we're forced to actually chew a lot more and that the saliva has all the enzymes to help break down that first process of digestion. And then the stomach's not designed to deal with big lumps of food. So that helps the stomach to digest as well. So that's sort of just, you know, thinking about it as um, slowing down and eating. And then the seasonal, local, sort of organic and whole food principle is also something that is important as well. And I think the final one is that you can still enjoy food freedom. It doesn't mean to say that you need to be on a diet for the rest of your life. It's really just eating so you feel well. You know, everybody knows how they feel after food. You know, sometimes, oh, God, I wish I hadn't have eaten that because like now I feel bloated or I feel this or whatever. It's really just going, when I eat, how do I feel? And eating more like that. But there are times in the festive season where we're at at the moment where, 
you know, we're going to eat things that we wouldn't have every day. And it's what you do most of the time that's most important. So we kind of play with that 80-20. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. I would love actually to add to that and talk about my favorite beverage, which <laughs> which is coffee. Is it a yes or no in your oh, book? Oh, you're talking to a, a, a <laughs> coffee connoisseur. I love coffee and I have probably overindulged at certain parts of my life, particularly when I was at university. And you, know, you had to be up at two to three o'clock in the morning studying, thinking that that was going to get you the best mark. Perhaps an early night's sleep would have done a far better job. But the research is, in a nutshell, that if you are sleeping well, and that's the first premise, if you are sleeping well, enjoy guilt-free one or two organic coffees, uh, preferably before midday. There are some people, however, and most of you know who they, you are, who will still have the effect of that caffeine as a, a stimulant and as a, a, a a driver of adrenaline-like symptoms and, and sleep deprivation, if you've got those genes that you've inherited from mum and dad that are really poorly efficient metabolizing and getting rid of the caffeine you have in the morning. And there are some studies that show that people who are slow metabolizers of caffeine can still have espresso in their, their blood 17 to 18 hours later, and that's going to impact on sleep. Most people have sorted that out by the time they're in their 20s. But if you haven't, it's really important to exclude caffeine completely if you are not sleeping well. And then to just have a little play with it. See if you can get away with one coffee early in the morning. You can push it out to two because there are other studies that show that people who do drink caffeine are less likely to get dementia. But if you don't sleep, you sort of you know, counteract that and you, you fall into a big heap. So it's just a matter of, again, reading the messages that come out of your body about how that food and your body interact with one another. I, I think it's also being really honest with yourself about it. I love the sort of idea that if you have to give something up for five days, how do you feel about that? You know, <laughs> um, because it's five little days. And if you gave up caffeine for five days, looking at the impact that that has on you, are you sleeping better? Are you actually feeling less wired? Are you missing it emotionally? It's interesting when I worked at Wingardium Lifestyle Retreat, and I still work there, but only only occasionally as their wellness advisor. But the the calls coming in were often, you know, talks about, well, tell me about the program. And some programs, not all programs, but some programs, they remove caffeine and alcohol because you know you're on a detoxification program, and the alcohol for a lot of People were like, oh, that's fine. But what about the coffee? Like, oh, oh, no, you know, I can't give up my coffee. So it is a very strong emotional driver to drink caffeine and to drink coffee. And it's also a very big socialization. But to be honest with yourself about it and, and to just say, all right, if I was to give it up for five days, yes, I might have a bit of a fuzzy head. Yes, I might get a bit of a headache. That's an indication that probably you're doing too much. If you can give it up for one or two days or five days and you just kind of feel all right, it's probably okay. And the, the most important thing is to make sure and to look at your sleep. And to be really honest, if you're not sleeping really well, give up caffeine for five days, see how you go. I think that's really important. And the final thing that I would say is my daughter has been breastfeeding. And of course, remember that if your genes are not coping with 
caffeine really well, it's highly likely that your little baby that you are breastfeeding, their little genes probably, at least they've got, you know, one from mum, who knows what they've got from dad in terms of the genetic lottery that we play, but possibly the child is um, having interruption of sleep as well because if you've still got caffeine in your system 17 hours later, it's possible that your little baby has too, well, your little one has well. There's, there's yeah. studies that show that babies who are breastfed caffeine can actually have caffeine remnants uh, measurable in their urine for up to three days after that breastfeed. So that's a reflection of the fact that their, their little detoxification pathways are much more sluggish regardless of their genetics until they actually grow into their, their little bodies. The way I've dealt with it is actually, because uh, I, I love coffee, because for me it's actually a beautiful morning ritual. I just love it. And uh, I every quarter I do a little uh, seven-day mini detox and take coffee off. And I, I definitely are very affected by caffeine. So that's the way I deal with it because I just, I just love it so much. But it was really yeah. interesting to hear. So thank you for sharing that. And doing a couple of replacement of the Swiss water-filtered decaffeinated coffee, you know, like still having that ritual or moving into some, you know, some really good quality chai lattes and things like that, or even the, the turmeric lattes that are about as well just just switching it out every now and again can kind of help that if you're a bit sensitive don't give it up completely but just think about the impact it's having on you yeah absolutely i can definitely see myself getting um, addicted to <laughs> turmeric latte if it's a good one so yeah thank you let's talk about emotional well-being if people are not feeling great emotionally where do they start because i think when you're not feeling great it's really difficult to kind of see you know, the forest for the trees. And I loved your 30-day helpful thought and action challenge, which we will be doing. Uh, we're going to read your book in Grow, which is my book club. And I'm going to encourage everyone to do that 30-day helpful thought and action challenge. But let's talk about emotional well-being and how we start that journey to, to be really well. Well, I would start by saying, I think when we think about self-care, we need to have a team of people around us. I mean, when we think about a business and we start, we need to have someone who's good at marketing. We need to have somebody who's, you know, really good at admin, somebody who's really good at the day to day things, getting things done and someone who's really good with product. And when we think about our own self care, we need a team of people around us. I think we need ideally an integrative doctor, potentially maybe it's a medical doctor and a naturopath. I think we need a Chinese medical practitioner for acupuncture because they deal with a whole other aspect of chi and energy and those sorts of things which we talk about in the book as well. And I also think we need someone that we can go and talk to. I say it's a talking therapist. That could be a counselor, it could be a psychologist, or it could be, you know, a psychiatrist if the need be, or it could be just finding a journey practitioner or maybe even an equine therapist just to find a way that you can kind of stop and feel your emotion and actually catch up. So I think having a team of people around us, I think, is a great place to sort of think about. When I was younger, mental health was when someone was incapacitated and couldn't look after themselves. And certainly that is a part of mental health today. But today it's expanded into just not being able to cope with life. So I believe having someone you can talk to is really important. In the book, we talk about how we perceive our life and how we think about the things that happen to us. And we also sort of, you know, really draw attention to the idea that if we think more helpfully 
around the challenges that we have. It helps us to look at situations that we face in life from different perspectives because what can happen when we're busy and we've got a lot of adrenaline and cortisol flying around in our system, we tend to focus on what's wrong with this. And life becomes this is wrong and this is wrong and and, and it's all what's wrong with this, what's wrong with this, what's wrong with this. And I feel a victim of this situation that I find myself in. I find that I've got no control. I'm completely overwhelmed. And that perpetuates the kind of thinking of what's wrong with this, what's wrong with this, what's wrong with this. By shifting and changing and being aware of how we think about things can actually change the perspective. And it goes a long way to support our mental and emotional well-being. Certainly having a therapist there to speak to, but we may find that the therapist is also encouraging us to actually shift and change our perspective and shift and change our thinking. We're the thinker, but we're also the observer of our thoughts. And the more we move into observing what we're thinking, the more we can start to audit and shift to a better quality of thought. And it puts us more in the driver's seat rather than being in the passenger seat and the mind is just taking us, you know, through the flotsam and jetsam of all the challenges in life. I spent a lot of time 30 years ago really pushing myself to actually go to Qigong. And, and I, you know, it was, it was very challenging for me. It wasn't easy, but I had a beautiful teacher. His name was Mr. Wong. And probably the most important thing he taught me was either you manage your mind or it manages you. Mm. You know, that 30 day challenge is just a simple way that you can sort of shift a few of your unhelpful thinking into a more helpful role and just see, you know, if you can start to audit your thoughts by observing them a little bit more and helping yourself. At the end of the day, it's only a thought and a thought can be changed. But a thought has a great deal of meaning to our body. You know, you can be sitting in a park and you're perfectly safe. The sun is shining, there's trees around you, and it's a beautiful day. And you know, physically you are completely safe. There's no reason for you to be in a survival state because your physical body is completely safe. And yet you can be thinking about the worst case scenarios that are happening in your life and your body can be flooded with stress hormones. And so the thinking will actually make you more stressed. If we can think ourselves to managing stress a little bit differently, that's a really big thing that can be very, very helpful for each and every one of us. Love that. Thank you. And Qigong was actually my favorite part of the Gwingana health retreat. I just loved it and just so beautiful way of starting the day. Uh, and also I love the quote, which is in your book by Lou Holtz. Uh, it's not the load that breaks you down, it's the way you carry it. So, And I also love how you encourage the readers to reread that chapter many times because I think we all deal with different stress at different parts of our lives. So it's a good one to go back to. For us, it's really the foundation of how we perceive life. There's always going to be highs and lows. There's always going to be challenges. There will always be trauma. However, there's great research that really looks at, you know, post-traumatic growth. And I think post Stress growth too 
you know, that we can actually coach ourselves to perceive and deal with life differently from a mental and emotional state and knowing that every day is a new day and just, just approaching it with a more helpful frame doesn't change what's happening to us, but certainly it, how we think about what is happening to us is actually more important than what's actually happening to us. Mm. And that's the message we kind of wanted to get through. And that's why there's three chapters in this book around emotional well-being, you know, stress in your nervous system and stress resilience because it's a big, big, big foundation of everything in life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you certainly cover that well, so thank you. I uh, think that for me, the My Morning Ritual has a big part of, of how I feel. So I would love to ask you both, have you got a specific morning ritual? Most of the time, yes, although sometimes in the busyness of travel, and you would know how, how this works as, all, as well, Christina, your daily routine tends to get interrupted quite frequently. I, I would certainly wake up, and I always wake up without an alarm. I'm, I'm very good at actually just setting a mental alarm and, and being up at a time that um, is appropriate for me. The only time I'd set an alarm clock is if I had to catch a plane, it would be a disaster if I did sleep in on that break. <laughs> and so I wake up with normally the, the sun, which is great. And I will have a huge glass of uh, lemon juice water. And then I would prepare my coffee because I, like you, love my morning coffee. There are some that say that you shouldn't drink coffee until after your, your breakfast. But for me, that's part of my morning ritual. And um, I have a Pilates reformer machine at home, and I just love, I love getting on that and probably just doing 10 to 15 minutes uh, and not too exerted. That just wakes my brain up, and then I sort of move into the day from, from there. I normally don't have breakfast until 9.30 or 10 because that suits me and my digestion, and then move into my, my work day as it, as it is. Mm. Mine's very similar to Karen in that I my body's circadian rhythm is very tuned to light and dark, so it's a I'm an early riser and uh, an, an early sleeper. Must admit, most of the time I'm in bed by nine ten, and uh, so sort of awake very early. My first thing is a couple of glasses of water. I always wake up thirsty, so I have a couple of glasses of water. I walk outside, and I live in the country, so I'm out in nature, and my I have horses, so. My morning ritual is to do with taking care of them and that's literally out to the horse paddock. At the moment, I've got a horse that's very, very lame, so he's in the stable, so there's some work to be done there. But that's where I take my breaths. That's when I do my gratitude and that's where I would do some of my Qigong practice. It's not always involved in movement. Sometimes it's just involved in visualization and you know, just really grounding myself to the earth and have been very, very, very grateful then I too would go in and have a coffee. <laughs> um, I only have one coffee a day and it generally happens sort of before eight o'clock in the morning. My breakfast doesn't usually happen until about 10, 11 o'clock as well. That seems to work really well for me. Um, but I drink quite a bit of water, um, between now and then. And, and I, you know, I'd like to say I have lemon juice every morning. I should have juice every morning. <laughs> yeah. I find it's so. interesting because we speak about blue zone time in the yeah. book and how important that is where you basically give yourself permission to do nothing, which is such a foreign idea to so many women. 
but to to understand number one the importance of it number two the fact that even just 30 seconds to a minute of that has value and one of the things that I find in my daily routine because I work from home is that I blue zone when my dog Dexter comes in and we just sit and we play and I give him a cuddle or I pat him and he teaches me how to blue zone really, really well. Yeah, I think the horses do that for me as well. They're blowing out, they're eating their hay, they're relaxing, the birds are singing, you know, those sorts of things. And quite often after I've had my coffee, I will go in and work on my email. So I can be, sometimes I can actually be on email at six, seven o'clock in the morning and sometimes it's not until eight. And by the time I get there, you know, I'm relaxed and um, I'm ready for whatever is is coming in. I mean, when you've got children, it's it's different. Uh, but if you can find that space where, you know, the, the kids go out and into the garden in the morning and there's a trampoline moment, a game moment where you're just kind of spending time before the whole, right, we have to get going, we have to do this, we have to get that. So it becomes more of a, a ritual. But that's, yeah, it's how you, how you start is how you proceed. It's yeah. interesting too when I look back to my childhood and it would be the same with Sharon, I'm sure, and many, many other people around, you know, my age, our parents used to get us up, get us dressed, feed us, and then say, go. And we used to spend all the time at the back, either in a backyard or a park or with our friends. The only time we came in was to be fed. We had such an outdoor experience mm. as children and ones that were, were very much involved in moving uh, and play and, and fun. And I think that we, we really have to how how we structure our own young children's lives to mimic that a little bit better than we do now. And that takes active parenting, which is sometimes really hard when you're coming from that place of depletion, uh, where it's far easier to get the electronic babysitter out and have child on an iPad than it is for you to try and find that energy when you're just exhausted to actually start to to uh, parent. And, and there's no easy um, solution to that one. I I really, my heart breaks for a lot of women in those circumstances, particularly uh, women who are single parenting and men also. You know, if they've got a, a full-time care for a, a child, you know, who's a, a pre uh, preschooler, they will also find it very difficult to actually have some, some zone out time, some blue zone time. Yeah, absolutely. It's much, much more difficult compared to, I think, when we grew up when the, the devices were not around. So yes, absolutely. But beautiful morning ritual. So thank you for sharing that. And I so relate to connecting with nature. I am curious, this is one of the favorite parts of the podcast, the listener tells me, and that is to share your favorite book. And I know that sharing your favorite book for people who read a lot is really difficult. So just choose one that comes to mind, or perhaps one that has had a big impact. It doesn't have to be the favorite. I I would say at the moment, I'm actually reading Michelle Obama's Becoming, and I have actually been following her for many, many many years with great admiration for the the strength that she has to have weathered that storm of eight years in the White House and to just see how she's embracing a normal life now where she actually finds time to be alone in the house, which didn't ever, ever, ever happen when she was um, First Lady. There was always somebody present in the room, in, in mm. the room and outside the room for security. But she was now basically finding her, her solitude again. And that was a, a beautiful part of that particular for me. 
I usually have two on the go. <laughs> and I use, I actually listen to a lot of things these days because I find when I'm, you know, when I'm in the horse paddock in the morning and I've got to, you know, do wheelbarrows of this and that and the other and I've got to lift horse feed and those sorts of things, I can also listen to um, Audible as well. One that I've absolutely loved is The Happiest Man on Earth by Eddie, mm. which I think is just a, a must read to get perspective on how grateful we can become and have hope in our life because of, you know, the, the traumas that we go through. And, you know, Eddie Jaku was a, a survivor of Auschwitz and uh, he, he didn't write the book till he was 100 years of age. And there's some, you know, obviously very challenging stories to read about his life, but then there's some beautiful stories, how he lived his life so gratefully and with hope. And so I, I think that's my one of my favorites. And then the other one is that I'm kind of making my way through is breaking the habit of being yourself. Yes, I that's love that. By Dr. Joe Dispenza, uh, which really helps us to understand how we think and how we play <laughs> with quantum field um, and how we bring things into our life. And I think that's a really interesting book to gain perspective of how we're thinking every day and how we may be actually manifesting uh, more challenging things rather than more helpful things into our life. And that plays into that whole helpful thinking thing we were speaking about earlier. Mm, beautiful. Love all the three books. Thank you so much for sharing. So this has been such an inspiring conversation. Thank you both so much. Just one more quick question that I would love for you to answer, and that is knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you give yourself to when you were younger, say late teens or something like that, whatever age comes to I, mind. I would ac- absolutely say do not be so driven and that came from me. It came from within, not anything that was imposed on me by my parents or other people, is to not be so driven to do, to yeah. do stuff. And I, I have a, a debt of gratitude to Sharon for basically teaching me the art strategic rest. <laughs> mm. I wish I had known that when I was in my teens, my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, and <laughs> then I met Sharon, so life's been wonderful since then. And there's a great deal of sharing of information. Karen has just absolutely filled my world with so much incredible interpretive knowledge as well, so I'm grateful to her for that. For me, it would be um, self-judgment um, from a very early age. I was in the fitness industry and it was a very environment of how you looked and, you know, indicative of that in my 30s. I was probably the fittest and, you know, almost from the outward looking like the poster child for health and fitness, but inwardly, and I talk about it in the book, I was really, really struggling with depression. And it was because I was just so self-judgmental. And I look back, at the photos of me back then and I was certainly adrenally exhausted and I was not healthy. And that's where we come back to wellness isn't what it looks like, you know, because back then I was adrenally really shot to pieces. My hormones were all over the place. But I looked like the poster child for health and fitness. I look back and I think, my goodness, I used to be so hard on myself. And, you know, I remind myself every day as I look in the mirror now, this is the best you're going to look now because as you head, you know, to the next decade, you're going to be looking back to yourself, looking in the mirror now, and you're going to be thinking, what was I worried about? So I look back at myself when in my twenties and my thirties and my forties, and I just think, you know, 
what an amazing skin I had and, and how I had a good, you know, sort of strong body, even though it was adrenally fatigued and those sorts of things. But it was, I looked good, you know, but at the time, all I could think of was what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd be kinder to myself. And I think we, there's that bully that we have inside that we beat ourselves up. And I, I think we just need to be kinder to ourselves. Yeah. What a beautiful way of ending this incredible podcast. It's just been so good. I am so inspired and I'm so excited to be reading How to Be Well in my book group uh, for February. So thank you both so much, first, for saying yes to come on the podcast, but secondly, and most importantly, to write this incredible book i will continue gifting it and uh, we will link to it in the in the show notes and i really hope everyone gets a copy and thank you so very much for sharing your wisdom not just with the academics but also from from your heart so thank you both so much thank you so much christina thank for you giving christina. us the opportunity it was a labor of love and we wrote it to help women mm. so we hope we hope from our hearts that that's what it's going to do yeah It sure will. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. Oh my, that was just so inspiring. I could have spoken to them for hours. I can't recommend their book enough. The title is How to Be Well by Dr. Karen Coates and Sharon Kolka. I will link to it in the show notes. Also, as mentioned in the intro, we will be reading the book in February in my book club. So if you want to join us, just go to dreamlovestartshere.com to sign up. At the time of releasing this episode, I think next month, being February, is the perfect time after the festive season and perhaps some holidays to start focusing on your health and well-being. Saying that, there is nothing like present. So if you are listening to this outside of this timing, now is the perfect time to start focusing on your health and well-being. I can't wait to hear what you think of this episode. Please share with me in the Facebook group, Your Dream Life, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. As always, I will be back next week. Have a wonderful week.